Thank you, Brother Jerry. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Good to be here tonight. We've been working our way through Job on Wednesdays. Uh, while I, when I teach on Wednesdays for quite some time, this is our next to the last message. I'm not sure uh, what to do next on Wednesdays. I'm praying about it, thinking about doing uh, studying the book of Judges. I did that about 16 years ago. Um, thinking about it. if you have any suggestions, go ahead and make them. I'd be interested to hear what you uh, would like to hear. Uh, but if you're going to get angry if I don't do it, please don't make any suggestions. But uh, I pro- do promise you, if you make one, I, I, I will uh, give it some thought, give it some prayer. Of course, we don't know when Job lived exactly, though we believe it was during the time of the patriarchs, most likely Jacob. We don't know exactly where the land of Uz was where Job lived. We don't know who the human author of the book of Job was either, but we do know God inspired the book of Job and God preserved the word of the book of Job for us today. And there are probably many, many purposes behind God inspiring and preserving this book. But one of those purposes for certain is this. No human being will ever be able to rightly say, no one's had it worse than I have. You want to find the person who's had it worse than any other human being ever. Uh, We're reading his story, and by the grace of God, he emerged from everything that happened with his faith intact. The last time I taught on a Wednesday, we talked about the words of Elihu. You may remember him. Elihu was not one of Job's three friends. He was a young man who had been listening in to everything that Job and his three friends had to say to each other. And unlike Job's three friends, uh, God condemned what they had to say about Uh, God. Uh, God didn't say anything about what Elihu had to say, and unlike Job's three friends, Job did not try to answer uh, Elihu. Uh, But one thing they would say for sure, if God and Job commented on what Elihu had to say, they would say, that guy talks a lot. Uh, I mean, 165 verses, six chapters in a row, he just goes on and on and on and on, and like a lot of people, uh, he talked a lot, but he didn't have a lot to say. Uh, But in there, there were some key things that he said, some good points are just harder to find because he talked so much. And as Elihu began to speak, if you remember, he was angry at Job and he was angry at Job's friends. He was angry at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. He was angry at Job's friends because they were harsh and they didn't really come up with uh, any actual substance to their accusation that Job was this wicked person hypocrite. And remember, as Elihu was finishing up, as he neared the end of his speech, he began to speak about the greatness of God and creation and the smallness of Job and mankind in, in comparison. And as we're going to see tonight, uh, Elihu's going to begin to sound a little bit like God when God enters our story. Now, we're near the end of the book, but there are a lot of people uh, who haven't been here the whole time. And so I'm going to just remind you of a little bit of the story of Job in the context. Job was the wealthiest man in his entire region. He was the most faithful and godly man on the planet. Uh, but God allowed Satan to afflict him. And Satan orchestrated the timing of the afflictions that he brought in such a manner that within just a matter of a couple of moments, Job learned that his hundreds of his employees, uh, in fact, all his employees, except for those who brought bad news, they died. 
Uh, he learned just as soon as that messenger was quiet, he learned that he had lost all his wealth. And as soon as that messenger finished, he learned that his 10 children were killed all at once in what anyone would call an act of God when this wind came and collapsed the house down on his 10 children when they were getting together celebrating one of their birthdays. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, by, by the way, when that happened, Job finished up and he worshiped God. He didn't sin. Uh, and Satan asked God to be able to do more to him. And God said, fine, spare his life. And Satan uh, gave Job boils from the top of his head to the tip of his toe. And Job was just literally sitting in an ash heap somewhere in or near the city, scraping the pus off these oozing sores with a pot shirt for months. Months, not days, not weeks, months. He went from being a man who was the prince, so to speak, of the area, someone respected by everyone, to someone who was mocked by drunkards. People would come by where he was just to make fun of everything that had happened to him. Job had three friends who lived some distance away. They had a plan to get together, and their plan was to meet and to go and comfort Job. They were such good friends that when they got there for seven days, they sat there and did not say a word to Job. Job didn't say a word to them. They saw his grief was so great. But somehow over the course of those seven days, their purpose in coming to comfort him changed and they decided that all these bad things happened to Job because Job was this hypocrite and this wicked sinner instead of who they thought he was. And so instead of comforting him, they really began this debate of criticisms and accusations and back and forth Job and these three friends went and as their conversation and the debate raged on Job slowly changed remember I don't point that out to criticize Job I don't think any of us here have the right to unlatch his shoe I don't say that to criticize him I I say that to point out what was going on and what happened is over time, as they continued to rage against him, that, that, I mean, Bildad even said his ten children got what they deserved. I mean, imagine that. And as time went on in this debate and discussion, it became more and more apparent that Job had a dark place in his heart of self-righteousness that came out in this trial. In fact, Job became so bold as to demand an answer from the Almighty and claim that if he could meet face to face with God, that he would make his case before God as a prince because this trial, in Job's mind, was unfair to him. And though Job's friends were wrong in their accusations, God had a purpose in bringing them to say what they had to say. By the way, I hope you understand tonight God has a purpose in everything he allows in your life. I'm not trying to get you or I to figure out why our toe hurts or uh, why some mosquito bite swelled up. But listen, any big thing that happens in your life or my, listen, God has a reason why he allowed it to happen. Among other things, God wanted the greatest man of faith on the earth to grow spiritually. Growth is a lifelong process. 
There isn't a person uh, standing on this platform or sitting here in the room tonight who doesn't need to grow in some way, and God is interested in our growth all our days. You may remember as we finished up last time, as Elihu was yammering on, a storm was gathering on the horizon. And as the storm grew closer and closer, Elihu finished up, and then out of the great winds of the storm, a whirlwind, God is going to enter the picture. You see, heaven had seemed silent for months to Job during this trial. Job sought answers from God. It was a deep trial. It was a painful trial, emotionally and physically and socially in every way. Job sought answers, but heaven seemed silent. And if it ever seems like heaven is silent, there's always a reason. And God, now in this story, he's about to show up in a special way to speak to Job. This is what Job thought he wanted. By the way, this is a perfect example of how we don't think rightly about God. See, in the way we wrongly think about God, remember most people, they don't have an idol to bail. They have used the God of the Bible's name and the name of Jesus, and they make a personality up that's according to their likeness. See, in our book, what happens at this point is God shows up, He sits down next to Job in the ash heap. He said, man, Job, man, you've had it tough. I'm so glad you made it through. I'm here now. Is that what God's going to do? By the way, I didn't write this. Stand, if you would, please, in honor of the Word of God. The title of my thought tonight is God, God Answers Job. God Answers Job. Job. Job wanted God to answer. God's going to answer. Uh, Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I'll demand of thee. Answer thou me. Remember, pronouns that start with T are personal, individual, singular. Job's three friends are there. Maybe Elihu's there, maybe not. Uh, He doesn't say, I demand of you. He is calling Job personally on the carpet. Verse 4. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issues out of the, issued out of the womb? When I made a cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness, a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the day spring, that's the dawn, to know his place. Thank you, might be seated. Those who think they have a case for how God has mistreated them, 
don't know God, nor do they understand themselves. See, Job thought, and if you go back to chapter 31, keep your hand there, we'll be back there in a moment. Here's what Job thought he wanted uh, and would do if he saw God. Job 31, 35, he said, oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me and that mine adversary had written a book. Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. I would declare unto him the number of my steps, and as a prince would I go near unto him. Uh, that's what Job thought. By the way, Job was the most righteous man on the planet. Compared to any other human being, that is true. But understand, though he compared well to human beings, he did not compare well to his creator. By the way, there are a lot of people who think they have a good reason for rejecting Jesus, rejecting the Lord's church, refusing to do ministry, to live carelessly as a Christian. But understand, though they think when they see Christ, they will give their reasons for doing what they did and not doing what they did. Understand that when they actually see Christ, they will not only be silent, they will be ashamed. Sometimes... Righteous people overestimate their own righteousness. And because we do and should compare favorably to the world around us, we lose sight of how poorly we compare to the righteousness of our Creator. And that's what happened to Job. If you go back to chapter 38 in a very intimidating scene, Jehovah answers Job out of a strong wind, a whirlwind, according to verse 1. The Lord answered Job, out of the whirlwind, and he said, uh, listen, there are a lot of stinging accusations. But imagine, imagine how it stung when God says to him, you don't know what you're talking about. That's what God says to him in verse 2. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> I don't know of a lot of things that could be said to any of us that would hurt more than somebody to say, you know what, you're talking a lot, but you don't know what you're talking about. That's what God says to Job. Unfortunately, having no real knowledge about the situation doesn't stop most people from talking about the situation. You see, God expected Job to listen. That's why he uses the singular thee in verse 3, the gird up. Now thy loins like a man, for I demand of thee, and answer thou me. He give Job opportunity to answer. Now Job is not going to end up taking it. He thought he wanted it. You see, it's kind of interesting that uh, according to our creator, there's a way that a man listens and faces up to what's going on. Gird up now thy loins like a man. And you may remember me talking about this Sometime recently, I don't know. I speak four times a week. I don't remember when I said what. When a man girded up his loins, he did one of two things. Remember, everybody had a kind of a robe-like thing, and sometimes they would reach in the back and grab the back of the robe, pull it up, and tuck it under there so you wouldn't trip over your robe. Other times they would grab the front and pick it up and pull it tight and tie it off or stick it in. It was something when a man would go to battle or a man would uh, compete in an athletic event or a man would be involved in some kind of hard labor. It was something distinctly masculine about the appearance of when a man did something manly. And God says, gird up now thy loins like a man. Listen to me and answer me. 
Now, that doesn't mean there's not a way that a woman listens. Uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter if a woman listens. It means that Job is being called out here by God. He's being called out as a man. God is answering Job's self-righteous demand for God to answer. Listen, before God is going to come over and put his arm around Job, Job has something he needs to fix. God is going to answer Job by asking 59 unanswerable questions. Rhetorical questions. Questions God knew Job couldn't answer. We just read, uh, we read up to verse 12. Let's pick up in verse uh, 13. They're all the same kinds of questions. He says uh, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it. It has turned as clay to the seal, and they, they stand as a, to the garment. And from the wicked, their light is withholden, and the high arm shall be broken. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare thou, if thou knowest it all. We just read 13 of those 59 questions. See, Job had answers for his three friends. He had no answers for God. You see, Job and his three friends, they considered themselves to be so smart, to be so knowledgeable, to be so eloquent. I mean, that's what this really was, is an intellectual debate of eloquence uh, as the four of them went back and forth over and over and over again. Can I tell you something that I don't like? You and I don't know as much as we think we know. I do believe we ought to seek knowledge especially knowledge of the holy. The New Testament says that knowledge puffeth up. By the way, that's true of knowledge of physics. That's true of knowledge of building a brick house. That's true of knowledge of the scriptures. And if any of us are careful, whatever it is, we've gained all this knowledge and we'll get puffed up. And Job, uh, listen, he was perfect. He eschewed evil. He was an upright man according to God. God said there is none like him. He was the best man on the planet, and the best man on the planet still had something that needed to be fixed to be more like his God. Now, some of the 59 rhetorical questions have to do with creation, like the 13 we just read. Others have to do with understanding uh, the creatures in creation. In chapter 39, let's read about a couple of those. God says to Job, Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do calf? Canst thou number the months that they fulfill? Or knowest thou the time when they bring forth? They bow themselves. They bring forth their young ones. They cast out their sorrows. Their young ones are in good liking. They grow up with corn. They go forth and return not unto them. Who hath sent out the wild ass free? Or who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Whose house I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwellings? He scorneth the multitude of the city. Neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture. He searcheth after every green thing. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? 
Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? Or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? And here he's going to basically ask 12 more questions of the 59. And they're related to wild goats and donkeys and unicorns. Uh, by the way, whenever you read the word unicorn in, in your Bible, uh, don't get this idea that it's this horse-like figure with a horn and rainbows. It, it literally means one-horned, unicorn. It's referring to a rhinoceros. Now, you may have a Bible that in the margin says wild ox, but listen, a wild ox has two horns. And physically, they're unable to do all the things that the unicorn, the rhinoceros, is described here as doing. Listen, God's whole purpose in these questions is not to get answers. Listen, study the life of Jesus. He asked a lot of questions. It was never to get information. It was always because he wanted someone to recognize something, someone to admit something, someone to see something that we're not seeing at that time. And that's what God is doing with Job. And after this intimidating experience of God audibly answering him from this intimidating storm, Job confesses that he, he spoke without knowledge. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I'll lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I'll not answer. Yea, twice. Will I proceed, but I will proceed no further. Let's stop it there. Now to you and I, that seems like a good, good confession. I mean, to you and I who don't see anyone's heart, those words sound like, wow, Job humbled himself. He's admitted he doesn't know anything. He, he's saying, listen, I'm vile. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to put my hand in my mouth. Uh, by the way, you can only imagine the fear that is gripping Job's heart at this point. Sounds like a good confession. By the way, I believe we ought to accept people's confessions and apologies even when they don't confess and apologize the way we think they should. By the way, when you and I are looking for restoration instead of vengeance, it will change the kind of confession we're looking for. So you and I don't really know someone's heart when they confess. I hope you're honest enough to understand, though you think you're an expert on what everybody else is, has in their heart. There's only one heart you know in the world, and it's your own. And this confession sounded good, but God, who hears not only our word, but he sees our heart, knew that Job hadn't really sufficiently humbled himself. So God continues, chapter 40 and verse 6. I'm, yeah, verse 6. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind. He said, gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand unto thee and declare unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud, and abase him. Look on every one that is proud, and bring him low, and 
tread down the wicked in, in their place. Do, do you see what God's doing again? Uh, in this particular case, he's going to go on. He's going to ask Job 29 more unanswerable questions. We just read four of them. Each one points out Job's inferiority to God. The fourth question is pretty humbling. Uh, in verse 11, uh, when he says, Behold everyone that is a proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Uh, uh, listen, uh, you and I not only can't bring all the proud low, we don't even know who's proud. Literally, the only person we know pride in is in ourselves. You can't recognize pride in someone else. You have no idea whether it's true confidence or pride, and one is good and one is very bad. In fact, I have that verse 8 kind of boxed in in my Bible because it's the bottom line of what Job was doing. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Remember, Job's bottom line here is, God, you did this in my life. You're not fair. God, God, you let my children die. God, you took my health. God, you caused hundreds of employees to die that I was taking care of. You left their families without their caregiver. God, you did this all in my life. You took this wealth. And God, you know I was a righteous person. God, you haven't been fair. That's what's going on here. I know no one here ever did that. I know no one ever here ever said, well, God, you've not been fair to me. God, I can't believe you let that in my life. God, why did you cause me to be born in that home? God, why did you let that person do this? God, why didn't you stop this or that? I don't know the answers to all of that. All I know is that God is righteous and he has a reason. Because Joe hadn't fully humbled himself, God continues on. He's going to speak of creatures that are unknown to us today like a behemoth. And we don't have time to read it, but in uh, verses 15 to 19, uh, the, our translators, they just uh, transliterated it. They took the Hebrew letters and made it uh, into English letters. It's probably speaking about a dinosaur, like a diplodocus. You read it sometime on your own with a long neck and a long tail and a strength in his uh, belly and a vegetarian. Uh, God's going to speak about another creature that we, we know nothing about today uh, in vor chapter 41, verses 1 uh, and 2, called a Leviathan. Same thing, transliterated Hebrew letters into the English language, uh, probably uh, this now extinct crocodile. C could you imagine a crocodile that's 40 feet long and weighs four tons? I mean, I like to see swamp people get that on the line. Shoot them, shoot them. Yeah, by the way, uh, dinosaurs were on the boat with Noah. And they got off the boat and they were around for a while. And most people, including myself, you don't know, think that's what it's referring to. doesn't quite matter. But the bottom line is, is God is talking about these creatures because uh, Job and his friends are very intimidated by these giant creatures. And God's point is, listen, you're afraid of those things Where's my fear? Where's my honor? How can you justify yourself instead of me? Is what God is saying to him here. 
Listen, God is making sure Job is getting everything in perspective. Job was a great man, but not compared to God. Look at chapter 41, verses 10 and 11. He says, none is so fierce that dare stir him up. That's the Leviathan. Who then is able to stand before me? What prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. See, in this final series of questions and comparisons, God finally gets Job where he wanted him to get all the time. So where did he want him? Honest about himself and who he was and what was in his heart. And honest and transparent about God. Job has a new confession now. Chapter 42, verse 1, then... Job answered the Lord. He said, I know that thou canst do everything, that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. You hear what he said? He said, listen, you're right, God. I talked like I was smart, like I understood everything about life, and you, I didn't really know. Verse 4, he says, here I beseech thee, and I'll speak, I'll demand of thee, and declare unto me. He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. This is the result of an encounter with God, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The greatest, most righteous man on earth needed to repent. His heart had a dark place in it. And Job kind of felt, well, you know what, I, I'm generous with my employees. I'm charitable with the people who have needs. He said, I'm a good husband to my wife. I'm a good father to my children. I eschew evil. I offer my morning sacrifices. It doesn't matter that much that I have this self-righteous place in my heart. He was wrong. See, God has an explanation for everything, but as much as I don't like it, he doesn't owe us an explanation for anything. This confession is good to God. And it was part of what God was looking for, and what's going to result from this, we'll have to get to that, Lord willing, next time. But I want to make a couple brief observations and applications of God answering Job's confessions. Here's the first thing. Those who believe in the Lord are supposed to be living more righteous. <laughs> but just because we're supposed to be living more righteous does not give us any reason to look down on anybody. You know, it's good sometimes to remember where the Lord found you. Sometimes it's good to remember where you'd be if Christ had not changed your heart. I, I shudder to think what I would have done in my marriage and how I would handle my children if Christ would not have changed my heart. By the way, if you don't feel like that about your life, you underestimate the darkness in your own heart. Here's a second observation. The way we apologize and confess our sins makes a difference. 
both to God and man. A general confession is never good as, as good as a specific one. You know, God, I've sinned today, please forgive me, is not the same as God, I had a proud thought when Susie complimented my hair. I get a lot of them. It's not the same as, Lord, I had that lustful thought when such and so went by me. Listen, I'm not saying God forgive me for my sins today is a bad confession, but it's not as good a confession as the Lord is looking for. By the way, when we apologize to people, uh, please forgive me for my anger. That's okay. Uh, it's much better, Lord, forgive me for my anger, or I'm sorry, forgive me for my anger and for calling you lazy and for stomping off. See, we, it is really our pride that keeps us from being honest in our confessions because in our heart of hearts, we really feel like a part of what we did was because of what they did. When in reality, anything you and I do is really 100% on us. Here's the third application we'll be done. The way we're willing to forgive those who apologize to us and seek our forgiveness makes a difference. Listen, you know, one of the best things you'll ever do is be the kind of person that doesn't demand a good apology. Listen, it makes all the difference in the world. If you're looking for vengeance, then you want everything laid out in order. After all, they offended you, and you are so important, and how dare they say that to you? And you know that's right. I think we ought to become good at accepting vague confessions because that's called being gracious. And I think we need to learn to be better apologizers. I hope tonight as you sit here, you're not someone who your spouse or your parent or your good friend would describe as they never apologize. I cannot think of very many things that would be a more embarrassing description of the way you live as a human being. We need to be good apologizers to our spouse. We need to be good apologizers to our children. We need to become good apologizers to anybody we offend. Are you? Storm. Whirlwind. Intimidation. Fear. A humble apology now, next time. Job, man, it's been terrible. I heard everything you had to say. We get them all out of order because we don't understand or embrace just how our sins offend and separate us from God. You bow your head and close your eyes.